Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and joining me for this episode is Dr. John Lennox, who is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at Oxford University and Senior Fellow at the Trinity Forum. He's an international speaker on issues related to Christian theology and apologetics, and he's the author of numerous books, including Can Science Explain Everything, God and Stephen Hawking, and 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. On this episode, I'll be talking with him about the intersection between faith and and science. So John Lennox, thanks for being my guest today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So in your book, God and Stephen Hawking, you say that in Hawking's view, we don't really need to posit the idea of God in order to explain the origin of the universe. Because as he says, if you have something like the law of gravity, the universe can essentially create itself from nothing. What in your view is wrong with that line of reasoning? Well, many things are wrong with it. The first thing is that He doesn't tell you where gravity comes from. Right. (laughs) And secondly, the idea of self-creation. If I say that X creates Y, roughly speaking, I mean you start with X and you'll eventually produce Y. But for something to create itself is simply nonsense because in order for X to create X, X must first of all be in existence. So this is completely incoherent. And so it doesn't solve the question that Hawking is trying to answer, which is why is there something rather than nothing? And quite frankly and bluntly, I would much prefer an answer that makes sense than one that doesn't make sense. The one that makes sense is, of course, there is something rather than nothing because God caused that something to be. And it's important there to realize what Christianity is claiming You see, it's claiming that the universe came from nothing physical, but not that the universe came from nothing. God is not physical. God is spirit, as Scripture tells us. So I fear Hawking was very unconvincing there. You've also said in various settings that the law of gravity can't exist in the abstract. 
We see its effect on material things, but it itself is not material. Rather, you say a law is the product of a lawmaker's mind. That's right. That's another thing that's wrong with his statement, although it's hard to know what he really meant by it. But I have a suspicion that he may have meant that a law itself could be creative. Yeah. Well, a law of gravity makes no sense if gravity doesn't already exist because right. it describes behavior of something in existence. Laws create nothing. And here, C.S. Lewis pointed this out a long, long time ago. And I'm old enough to have listened directly to C.S. Lewis many years ago. And he has helped me considerably in understanding these things. I think he's dead right there. Newton's laws of motion, they never caused a snooker ball to go across a table in the history of the universe. It's people with cues do that. The laws describe what's happening, but they do not cause it. Yeah, you say in one of your books that the mathematical law of one plus one equals two never added any dollars into anyone's bank account. <laughs> well, that's, that's again Lewis, you know. You can see what an influence Lewis has had on my thinking, but he's very clear. His analogies are absolutely brilliant. Um, doing mathematics doesn't create money, which may just, by the way, be one of the problems with the financial crash. People thought <laughs> mathematics could create money. <laughs> Another argument that I observed Hawking make once in a documentary of his own was that before the Big Bang, time didn't exist. So there was essentially no room for a god to step in and act. And I thought this was a particularly weak argument against the Christian worldview, which has always spoken of God as being outside of space and time. In fact, I ended up thinking that it was actually an argument against his own position, because in a purely naturalistic scenario... If there's no time before the Big Bang, how could anything get started? Well, these are profoundly difficult questions, and behind them lies the basic one. Nobody knows what time is. And it's quite clear from Scripture that God's relationship with time is not the same as ours. The Lord Jesus himself made a profoundly interesting statement that I'd love to be able to understand. And it goes like this, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. Now, that is telling us that he has a completely different relationship to the world in temporal terms than we have. And people have argued for centuries, really, trying to find out what time is. It's like the basic things in the universe, we think we understand them. And I imagine it went as far back as Augustine, who said we think we know what time is until we try to define it, right. <laughs> and we get stuck. In some of your books, you discuss this idea of a fine-tuned universe and argue that it actually points to God's existence. Can you talk about that and explain how this argument is different from a kind of God-of-the-gaps argument where God is brought in to explain things that we don't yet understand? Yeah, this is the opposite of a God-of-the-gaps argument. You're right. That kind of argument is, I can't explain it, God did it. It's the nature of the fine-tuning that demands an explanation and the fact of its accuracy. There is general agreement. Most cosmologists and physicists, like Hawking and others, recognize that nature is fine-tuned in many different ways. The simple ways that we can understand are that the distance of the Earth from the sun if it was much more, we couldn't live because of the cold and vice versa if it was too near. But when we come down to the fundamental constants of nature, the fine tuning is so accurate that 
as Hawking himself said, it demands an explanation. And he then says, well, you could have the old idea that this is because there is a God who is a creator. And we notice his use of the word old to knock it down as if something that's old must be wrong. Well, I'm old, and perhaps <laughs> if you apply it to me, I've got to be wrong. That That's foolish argument. I think Lewis called that chronological snobbery. <laughs> he did. That's a wonderful description of it. But the point is, as is recognized by these scientists, like Sir Roger Benrose in Oxford, who's just won the Nobel Prize for his work on black holes and so on. He says in one of his arguments that the creator's aim, and he uses the word creator, even though he's not a theist, Hmm. has to be accurate to one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123, to have a universe like ours in which there is a second law of thermodynamics. Yeah, I read once where Sir Frederick Hoyle, who I think was Hawking's tutor, said that when he calculated the odds, it seems like some kind of super intellect has monkeyed with the laws of physics. <laughs> that, that's that's right. I knew Fred Hoyle a little bit. Wow, I met did you? him several times and discussed these things with him. Huh. And he was one of the people who discovered an earlier less impressive form of fine-tuning, and that was, where did all the carbon in the universe come from? Fred Hoyle said, nothing shook my atheism like that discovery did. Interesting. So this is the kind of thing that's happening. It shakes people because it is so accurate. Now, the best explanation of that is, to my mind, that there is an intelligent God behind it. Right. The alternatives to that view mostly have to do with the multiverse because they realize that the thing is so improbable, they have to invent millions, if not an infinite number of other universes in order to get the probability down. Now, one of my teachers of quantum mechanics, Professor Sir John Polkinghorne, pointed out that much more sensible in postulating an infinite number of universes, to which, by the way, we have no access. We can't tell that they're there. Exactly. It's far more sense to postulate a single creator who has built this universe with its laws. And that is why it is fine-tuned. And it's not just a postulation. You know, you could say uh, the multiverse is dogma and the Christian faith is dogma, but there is another side of the Christian claim, and that is there is more than natural revelation. There's also special revelation where God has revealed himself. Oh, that's absolutely right. I think I'd put it slightly differently. I would say that you can say that God is a hypothesis speaking in scientific terms, but there's strong evidence for his existence. The multiverse is a scientific hypothesis, but the evidence for it is missing. Right. But as you say, we do as Christians believe not only in the evidence that's coming through God's revelation in nature, which science is picking up quite a bit of, but the special revelation. And in God's special revelation, he tells us that in the beginning was the Word. All things came to be through him, that is, through the Word. So this is a Word-based universe. And when you put that alongside what we know from science, we can see that that is highly illuminating. Mathematics, I'm a mathematician, mathematics we use to describe the universe. But there is, within biology, the longest word we've ever discovered, the human genetic code. 3.4 or so billion letters long. And all of that is a pointer 
towards the existence of God, who is the Word. So it fits. And one of the reasons that I'm a Christian believer is that the special revelation of God illuminates and makes sense of what we can see in the world around us in terms of general revelation. You also talk about questions related to the origin of life. And back when I was in school, we learned about something called the Miller-Urey experiment, uh, which purports to tell the origin of life by way of natural phenomena of chemistry and physics. Uh, What are your thoughts about the Miller-Urey experiment? And uh, do you think it actually solved the problem of uh, the origin of life? Well, no one thinks it solved the problem anymore, really. The Miller-Urey experiment consisted in simulating a primitive Earth atmosphere and then passing electrical discharges through that mixture. And they discovered some of the building blocks of life, the amino acids. And it was hailed as the solution to the problem of life. But of course, what was not realized in the early 1950s was what Crick and Watson later were to discover, that the problem isn't so much getting the amino acids, it's getting them in the right order. Right. And the order is a linguistic code-like order. And the thing has essentially got stuck in the opinion of many researchers on the origin of life, has got stuck back in the 50s because no way has been found. That is no naturalistic process has been discovered that delivers semantic information of the type that's encoded in DNA. And very little progress has been made in developing any kind of naturalistic scenario for the origin of life, although many very bright people have worked on it. And their work is interesting because they've discovered a lot more about life. Just recently, there has been the offer of the Evolution 2.0 prize of $10 million for anyone who can come up with a naturalistic scenario of a a self-replicating machine, something like that. It's been put up by Perry Marshall, who actually is a Christian. Hmm. And that all makes it very fascinating. You write that the information stored in our DNA is, quote, now one of the most fundamental concepts of science. The information printed on a page is carried on the physical medium of paper and ink, but the information itself is not physical, a fact that would appear to create an insuperable difficulty for a strictly materialistic understanding of the universe. So is basically what you're saying that because information is non-physical, it simply can't be explained by things like physics and chemistry? Yes, I think that's right. And I think it's a very powerful argument that has been largely ignored. Any marks, signs, symbols that carry meaning immediately inform us that there's a mind working somewhere. And I think it's shouting at us when we come to see either the mathematical describability of the universe or uh, the genetic code and biological information. And the point about the genetic language is it codes for something. It has what we call a semantic dimension. And that's why it's not reducible to physics and chemistry. Some things are, but the one thing that isn't is language. I have tested many people with this. 
who claim that they're reductionists in the ontological sense. That is, everything can be reduced to physics and chemistry. And I often just at the dinner table, and I've done it several times, hold up the menu and say, look at these marks on paper. And the person I'm talking to may say, yes, it says roast chicken. And I say, how do you know? Well, I've, I've learned English, and that's what it says. The marks in the paper carry a meaning, roast chicken. So I said, okay, you're a reductionist. Please explain to me how those marks carry the meaning roast chicken. And all you're allowed to use is the physics and chemistry of the paper and ink. Yeah. And I've had several people sit back and say, but it can't be done. You've got to postulate a mind in order to do that. And I say, exactly. And that's why I believe that whatever physical processes are involved in, say, the production of DNA, there must be a mind involved as well. And if you step back from it, it's extremely interesting because materialism is one of the dominant philosophies of our day. That's all the stuff that there is, matter or its equivalent energy. Right. But it's not. We live in an information age, and physicists have recognized that information is a fundamental quantity in its own right that cannot be reduced to physics and chemistry. And to my mind, that's the end of materialism. Yeah. So there won't be any process out there to be discovered simply because you're talking about two completely different categories, that of matter, material, and that of information, which is immaterial. And the great irony of it, to my mind, is now here in the 21st century, science depends crucially on the immaterial hmm. and is rapidly showing this to be essential, not some peripheral notion. And of course, that supports the biblical claim in the beginning was the word. The, the universe is a product of a non-material God who is real, of course, nevertheless real. And who is rich in information content and he speaks the universe into existence. Absolutely. He produces the kind of information that we can't produce. Yeah. If I say, let there be light, nothing happens. If God says, let there be light, there is light. As you were discussing these kinds of questions with uh, noted atheist Richard Dawkins at a debate over a decade ago now, he asked you the question, you know, if the universe is the creation of a God who speaks it into existence, who then created God? How did you respond to him when he asked that? Well, that is such a silly question. Uh, I was amazed to get it from someone like Dawkins with his kind of education, because if you ask who created God, you're assuming God was created. But the central claim of the great monotheistic religions, and in particular Christianity, is that God is eternal. He wasn't created. So the question doesn't apply to any God that's worthy of the name God. And the sting in the tail is this. Of course, his question is valid for created things. Right. You can always ask of a created thing, who created it? So I said to him, you believe that the universe created you. So tell me, who created your creator? And as you say, it's over a decade ago, and I still haven't had an answer. Hmm. It is a very silly question indeed. And 
I just think it, it needs to be treated as it deserves. What is the difference between science and scientism? Well, a profound difference. Scientism is very widespread these days. Hawking popularized it, and so does Dawkins. It's the idea that science is the only way to truth, the belief that science can explain everything, which is why I wrote the book that you mentioned at the beginning, right. Can Science Explain Everything? And it's a very strange viewpoint because it doesn't really understand the nature of explanation. That's the odd thing. Science claims to explain things. But even people at school, I find kids, you know, 11, 12, 13, they can understand the difference between a scientific explanation of why water is boiling in terms of heat being transferred through the base of a kettle and agitating the molecules of water and an agent-based explanation in terms of, well, the water's boiling because I'd like a cup of tea. Right. Not only that, I find children can understand very clearly that those explanations are different kinds of explanations, but you don't have to choose between them. That would be absurd because they do not conflict or compete. They complement. And, and therefore, it is absurd to suggest, and really absurd, it's nonsense, that science can explain everything because, think about it, that would cause half the faculties at all universities to close tomorrow. History is a rational discipline, but it's not natural science, and so you could go on. And the big mistake, I think, within scientism is it gets people imagining that if it's not natural science, it's not rational. Well, that's sheer nonsense. And that needs to be combated, which I've tried to do in many different arenas. Yeah. One of the things I never knew about you was that at various points throughout your career, you taught courses in places behind the Iron Curtain. And you actually had a number of opportunities to make a case for God in those largely atheistic settings. What made you decide to do that? Well, it just happened in the sense that I spent a year in Germany in 1975-76 and learned the language and could speak it pretty fluently. And I was invited by someone from Eastern Europe to Hungary. And I went to Hungary and found that they were immensely interested in hearing my teaching, partly because there were very few people with my level of education doing Christian things, right. Bible teaching especially. It was even worse than that in the German Democratic Republic because children were forced, children of Christian parents who themselves confessed Christ, wouldn't be allowed to have a high school education beyond 13 or 14 if they weren't prepared to swear publicly allegiance to the atheistic state. Wow. And I became intrigued by the effect of atheism on people's minds, on their lives, and all this sort of thing. And I saw that because I was fluent in German, I could bring a lot of encouragement from showing that you can take scripture seriously. In the early days, I wasn't giving courses of lectures on science and God or anything like that. I was really publicly showing that the Bible is rationally credible. And so it was with a strong apologetic twist that I was explaining scripture there. It was after 1989 when the wall fell down that I started actually going to Russia huh. 
as a mathematician. And there I got opportunity to go on a public platform and say things that hadn't been heard for 75 years in, in Russia and talk about how I, as a scientist, could believe rationally in God. And there was huge interest in that. That was an absolutely fascinating time. I think it originally stems from the fact that I want to know whether what I believe is true or not. Hmm. And I found in my life that one of the ways of measuring that is to expose what I believe to its opposites. Right. And of course, in the former Soviet Union and in Russia and Ukraine, I was able to do that because of the huge cultural influence of atheistic teaching under the guise of, of Marxism. Do you think that in some ways atheism leads to totalitarianism? Well, it certainly has a track record that associates those two ideas, because if you reject God, I mean, the logic is fairly simple in a sense. If, if you reject God, you have to put something in God's place. And atheistic cultures have tended to put man in God's place. And in fact, in, in Russia and so on, they even tried to develop a kind of Superman by genetic engineering. And it, it was the forerunner of what I've written in my book, 2084. When you reject God, one, well, several, in fact, Russian academics put to me the chilling statement, we thought we could get rid of God and retain a value for human beings. And we found we couldn't, and millions of them perished. Wow. You devalue God, you in the end devalue men and women, and then they get killed in millions. So the 20th century has been the bloodiest century of all of history, and it's been very directly associated with atheistic teaching. So how do you respond, as someone who believes in the Bible— and engages with others in scientific forums, how do you respond to critics who chide you for taking this book seriously, particularly when it speaks of a creation in the span of six days, in which, if taken literally, seems to point to a world that is less than 10,000 years old? Well, you can take it that way if you like, but you don't have to. Just as in the time of Galileo, Christians argued that the Bible said that the earth was fixed so that it didn't move. And Galileo discovered it did move. And in, <laughs> there were a lot of fixed earthers at that time. <laughs> and Galileo was a, an early moving earther. But later they could see that what was wrong was not what the Bible said. It was their interpretation of it. They were far too literalistic in their interpretation. Just like they were far too literalistic about the interpretation of natural revelation. The whole world was wrongly interpreting what they were seeing with their own eyes about the sun rising and setting, etc. Oh, well, sure, that that's right. And they were heavily influenced by Aristotle. Right. But on the question of the days of Genesis and so on, I have found in life that the more seriously you take the Bible, a lot of these things get resolved. And I've in fact, that now this is a big subject, we could take a very long time dealing with it. I've written a book about it, Seven Days That Divide the World, where I try to be really fair and help people to think through this. But the point that's often made is, look, it appears that the universe must be very young and science says it isn't. Well, actually, as far as I can see from the grammar of Genesis, the Bible doesn't say it's young either because, and let me just give you one example of this and people can follow it up in my book. 
the text begins with the wonderful statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's a sequence of seven days. And the interesting thing is, as Hebrew scholars point out, there are two Hebrew past tenses. And the first two verses of Genesis 1 are in one past tense, describing the original creation. And the seven days description comes in another past tense. And Jack Collins, who's both a scientist and a Bible translator, in fact, says that the difference in the two means that the beginning occurs at an indefinite time before the sequence of days. Well, if that's the case, then the Bible actually says nothing about the age of the earth. And I'm sad when well-meaning believers who wish to protect the authenticity of the Bible go beyond what it itself says and then make the whole thing look ridiculous. That is entirely unnecessary. Now, I'm aware there's a great deal more to be said, but I have said right, it. Right, <laughs> yeah. One of the things you frequently push back against is the way in which the word faith is often misused by contemporary atheists, particularly when they define it as believing in things without evidence. But that's not the way the word faith is presented in the New Testament, is it? No, it's not the way the word faith is presented either in any but the most postmodern dictionaries. Hmm. Uh, faith in English comes from the Latin fides, from which we get fidelity, which carries ideas of trust and reliability and so on. And if someone says, I believe something or I believe someone, the next logical question is to say, what are your grounds for that belief? Because faith is only validated, belief, the same meaning, essentially, are only validated by the grounds on which you hold those beliefs. Now, believing where there's no evidence, that is often called blind faith. It's actually a contradiction in terms, but that's what it is. Christianity is evidence-based. We can see very clearly from many things that Jesus himself said, how he understood this. And I think one of the most important is the statement that John makes at the end of his gospel, his biography of Jesus, explaining why he wrote it. And he said many other signs, that is things that point beyond themselves. Jesus did many other signs, miracles, we often call them. They pointed to his identity. And John says they're not written in this book, but these are written, the ones he has chosen to write, in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, John's saying, I have collected a number of things Jesus did, and I'm presenting them to you as evidence upon which faith can be validly based. So evidence-based faith is of the essence of Christianity. Yeah, Paul makes a similar claim in... Um in his famous Mars Hill sermon, where he says, God has given proof of his coming judgment by, you know, raising his son from the dead. So that it's a vindication of the ultimate claim of an otherworldly, you know, judgment based on what happened to Jesus. That's right. In fact, the resurrection of Christ, God raising him from the dead, is a supreme piece of evidence. And that's what the early Christians, like Paul, announced to the world. And it was that that got Christianity going. You've made the case in a variety of public forums that the New Testament Gospels are authentic historical accounts of the life of Jesus. Why are you convinced of this? Well, 
for many reasons. And there again is something that could fill volumes. Many people think, like some atheists say, you know, that we can have no trust in Scripture. But in fact, the New Testament is the best documented book from the ancient world. And at school, I was taught Latin. I read Caesar's Gallic War, but nobody ever told me that the earliest manuscripts for that are dated, so far as I can recall, seven or 800 years after the original events, and no scholar really doubts them. Well, the Bible is rich. The New Testament is rich in the number of documents it has, some of them going back right to early days. And some people say, oh, but the It's been copied out so many times. That is a total misunderstanding. Think of some of the early fragments of John's gospel, such as the John Rylands fragment, Mm -hmm. that are probably less than 100 years after Jesus' time. Now, we have that fragment in a museum. So it has been sitting there for nearly 2,000, and not in the museum, but it has existed for about 2,000 years. How many times has that been copied out? Well, arguably just once, not hundreds of times. And the other way of getting at this, which is very important, is to check what Scripture asserts about things that are checkable and researchable and see, is it accurate? And that has been done in great detail particularly on the Gospel of Luke, and there's a magisterial volume by Colin Hemer. Right. And he points out that all of the things that you can check, like the names of islands, the names of roads, the different kinds of people in at various levels in local government, etc. Luke got them all right. Yeah. And it turns out that he's one of the most competent historians there's ever been. So to sum that up, The interesting thing is that the people to ask about this are ancient historians, not theologians, ancient historians that know about history. And as you read what they say, even if they're atheists, they are widely agreed, not only about the existence of Jesus, but of many of the things that are recorded in the New Testament. So authenticity is something well worth investigating. And there's a very useful book by Peter Williams of Tyndale House in Cambridge called Can We Trust the Gospels? You also cite Richard Bauckham's work, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Correct. A very helpful book. And his other book, Jesus, A Very Short Introduction, is really helpful for beginners. It's not quite as technical, not quite as thick either. Now, um, the Jesus described in those Gospels, which you say are authentic and reliable, does incredible things. He walks on water, he gives sight to the blind, and most important of all, he conquers death. And as a mathematician who knows a little bit about mathematical improbabilities, isn't it much more likely that the stories about Jesus ended up being, you know, exaggerated or made up rather than breaking these natural laws that we know? You know, we we know that miracles can happen, right? You don't believe miracles are happening all around you, do you? No, but you see... Again, there's a profound misunderstanding of the laws of nature here. The laws of nature are descriptions of what normally happens. Now, as a Christian, I believe that God has set regularities into the universe that we recognize. And incidentally, you've got to know those laws to recognize a miracle. Right. If you didn't know that dead people remain dead, normally speaking, 
you wouldn't be slightly phased by a resurrection. And C.S. Lewis, again, really, I think, gives the most helpful analogy of all. If, say, I'm staying in London overnight in a hotel and I put $100 in my drawer and I do the same the next night, I've got $200 by the laws of arithmetic. If on the third morning I wake up and find only $50, what do I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of England? Well, of course, I conclude that the laws of England have been broken because the laws of arithmetic have not been broken. Right. It's the fact that I know those laws that I realize that a thief has taken $150. Now, this is a very simple illustration, but it's profoundly important because I need to know arithmetic in order to recognize that something has happened. And my mistake was to think that the system of the drawer and the cupboard and so on was a closed system. It turned out not to be. Now, at the level of the universe, it is not a closed system either. It's created by an intelligent God who can feed any event he likes into it. They don't break any laws at all. But it's our knowledge of those laws that enable us to recognize that God has fed a new event in. And a lot of the problem in this area has been created by the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, who said miracles are violations of the laws of nature. And in the United States, where you are, I often see on a sidewalk, violators will be told. In other words, this is violations of the law of a state. But the point that I'm making is the laws of nature are not the laws of a state. We're not in legal talk, we're in scientific talk, and the laws are simply descriptions of what normally happens. And if I drop an apple, the law of gravity will say it'll hit the ground, but that doesn't stop you catching it before it hits the ground. So, of course, I'm very skeptical about many claims to miracle. We have to be. exactly. But the miracles claimed for the Lord Jesus are very unusual because, as I said earlier, they are set forth to us as signs. They point to something else and they make sense. They're not arbitrary. They're not magic. They're Jesus demonstrating who he was, walks on waters, Lord of creation, stills a storm and so on. And eventually God raises him from the dead and shows that death is not the end. This is a really big deal, but as a scientist, I haven't the slightest embarrassment in confessing publicly that I believe that it actually happened, and it's the foundation stone on which my commitment to Christ rests. You know, as you look through the claims made throughout the book of Acts and the writings of Paul, again and again you find the apostles not only claiming that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead, but also that he fulfilled countless prophecies yes, that's about true. the coming Messiah. Do you think that's perhaps a missing component to contemporary apologetics, that not only was he seen alive after his crucifixion by a multitude of eyewitnesses, but also this very thing was seen in advance by the prophets, which just cries out for a divine explanation? I think it does, and it's unique, really, to Christianity, fulfilled prophecy. And we should talk about it, absolutely. We sing about it at Christmas. We right. talk and we read Isaiah's famous predictions that made 700 years before Jesus was born. And I think this is largely forgotten by people. 
And I've written about it in several of my books. One, my book on Daniel, Against the Flow, and actually as well in 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. Well, folks, you've been hearing from Oxford mathematician John Lennox, who is the author of Can Science Explain Everything and many other books that you can find in the show notes at humbleskeptic.com. Be sure to join us again next time for the second part of this conversation as we discuss the different approaches that the major worldview options take in attempting to solve the problem of evil, as well as challenges presented by artificial intelligence. Folks, the Humble Skeptic Podcast is listener-supported, and one of the ways you can help is by upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack. If you sign up for an annual subscription, the cost is less than $5 per month. Another way you can help is by making a one-time donation by clicking on the Donate tab at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Our lives.